Christmas is coming very soon. And we're going to focus today on the theme of the third Sunday, which is love. So we're going to talk about love today. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 13. Um, if you have your Bible, please open there. Uh, we project the verses to serve you uh, so that you can see where we are and what we're talking about. But the very best thing is to have a Bible right in your own hands. Um, I think kind of growing familiar with the scriptures in that way is, is of immense benefit. So I just encourage you to open up your own Bible, whether on your phone or, or a paper Bible, and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to talk about love. Love is an important and powerful thing. There are lots of different ideas about love that are out there. There's a lot of different ideas about love in history as well. Uh, I think it's important to note that Christianity has significantly shaped the understanding of love and a lot of the things that we assume about love are, are actually from Christianity. Outside of Christianity, you'll see actually very different and, or different nuances to love, different perspectives on love. Scripture comes and informs us about true love, the love of God, and what His love is like. And so at Christmas time, it's fitting to focus on love and God's love because Christmas and the gift of God himself among us, taking on flesh, being born as a humble baby in a manger, demonstrates his amazing love, demonstrates this quality, demonstrates his character, really. The Apostle John has a number of things to say about the love of God in 1 John 4, 16. It, he says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Love is at the very core of God's character. It's connected in such a strong way that John could say, God is love. We maybe are familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal Life. First John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be that offering, that sacrifice to pay for our sins and reconcile us to a good and holy God who is full of infinite and eternal love. He loves us that much. He loves us so much that He would give His own Son in exchange for us. There's no greater love than the love of God and no greater love than the triune love. God loving the Son and the Spirit. This love that's been eternal among the Trinity and flows out of them to us. And so we gauge the, the size, the um, immense uh, magnitude of the love of God by recognizing that He's given His own Son, God the Father, in, in concert with the Son and the Spirit, gave the Son in exchange for us His righteous life given as a payment for our sins and to satisfy God's right and good justice. Of course, we know that He was crucified on the cross for our sins. He died and on the third day, He rose again victorious over sin and death. And through Him, through simple faith in Him, this is part of His love. 
simply turning away from self-effort and self-righteousness, turning away from sin, lack of love, and turning to Christ in faith, through this simple act of faith, just turning and believing, we are credited with that forgiveness and His righteousness. His, the worth of His life becomes ours. This is love. And I could just stop right there and be happy preach that truth this morning. But there is an aspect of love that I want to focus on today, an aspect of this love of God that comes from the character of God, is at the core of who He is, but is also meant to touch our lives and to fill us and flow through us to others. And so today, I want to focus on that aspect of it, this love of God that He calls us to, that He empowers us to walk in, that He intends to fill us up and flow through us. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is probably one of the very best passages in Scripture. Scripture is full of truth about love, by the way. And, and, and I would recommend, actually, if you want to dig deeper uh, beyond the message today, to consider Jonathan Edwards' uh, book, Charity and Its Fruits, uh, a good book, digging into all the truths about love related from this chapter we'll be looking at. But let's, let's look at these truths about the love of God and the love we're called to from 1 Corinthians 13. Let's pray and ask God to touch our lives with the truth of His love. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Christmas and the reminder of this amazing truth that You gave Your only Son for us. You've not left us alone in our struggles and our sins. You've sent your very self and given yourself for us. No one loves like you. Help us to see that love today. Help us to be changed by it. Help us to love others as a result and glorify your most worthy name. We pray. Help me, Lord, to serve you well and serve your precious people and all who are here well in teaching and proclaiming your word. Make your presence known among us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll read the whole chapter. Paul says to the Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. 
As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There are three sections to this chapter that I want to take a look at. First, verses 1 through 3, love's necessity. Then verses 4 through 7, love's nature. And then 8 through 13, love never ends. All in these points we learn that love is the highest and most necessary virtue of the Christian life. Love is the highest and most necessary virtue of the Christian life. So first, love's necessity, verses 1 to 3. Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, and if you take time to look at this letter in this context, uh, the chapters that are around here, he's talking about spiritual gifts, and right in the middle is this chapter on love, this famous chapter on love that we hear at weddings, perhaps. It's given to a church that was wrestling with how to understand church life in many ways, and in particular, how to understand the practice of gifts. They were enamored by certain gifts and the status that they seem to bring. And so Paul brings this truth in love to them to help adjust them. And so he starts with reference to the gifts, the gifts of tongues. This is an amazing supernatural gift, and I don't have time to get into all the aspects of this gift. We believe this gift continues for today. It is to be used in love. But it's an amazing supernatural gift that, that enables one by the power of God the Holy Spirit, to speak languages previously unknown, even the languages of angels, if that were possible here. It's an amazing superpower. It's an amazing gift, if you think about it. It's an amazing thing to have some, a gift that by the Spirit of God, all of a sudden you can speak languages you hadn't previously studied. And it shouldn't surprise us that the Corinthians were enamored by this gift, and they were over-focusing on this gift. Just, just think about it for a second. Imagine if you one day all of a sudden woke up and you could speak fluent Swahili or Mandarin or Russian or Arabic or whatever. I think you might be a little bit stoked about that. You might be a little bit like, whoa, hey, can I show you my latest gift? Listen to this. And then imagine if actually you, you could speak the language of angels so you could somehow communicate in angelic languages. It's an amazing gift. It's a powerful gift. It's, it's, and Paul never takes away from that aspect, actually. And he doesn't tell the Corinthians, don't, no, no, don't practice this gift. He puts it in its proper context. But, but, but he doesn't tell them not to do it. It's quite a gift. It's, it's a, quite a superpower, but... But Paul comes along, actually, and, and kind of rains on their picnic, their celebration of this gift, 
telling them that you could have this superpower gift, and if you don't have love, that this gift actually is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, it's likely that he's using these comparisons because they would have been hearing, hearing noisy gongs and clanging cymbals with the pagan worship that went on, went on in Corinth. The, the dissolute central worship of uh, Dionysus and Sibeli. Uh, they would make lots of noise with gongs and cymbals as part of their call to worship. And so Paul is likely comparing the use of tongues without love to that noisy, misdirected, obnoxious experience that they all were familiar with. And so it's, a, it's quite a, an adjustment to them. Saying, guys, this gift that's really amazing and is a superpower gift that you're so excited about, without love it becomes like that. It becomes obnoxious, misdirected, unhelpful, noise. Such is the necessity of love. Without it, superpowers become super obnoxious. Next, he mentions the, probably the second most desirable superpower among the Corinthians. That's prophetic powers. The God-given ability to hear direct revelation and to know about things you wouldn't know otherwise. Perhaps even things of the future. It's quite a superpower to have that ability. Paul goes on, actually, in, in that verse uh, to include the supernatural uh, insight into the deepest mysteries of the universe. Having the ability to understand all mysteries. He uses the word all here to emphasize this aspect of imagine having the ability that you could perceive all the mysteries of the universe, all the deep things of God, all the deep things of His creation. Understanding all those mysteries. And then he goes on to have all knowledge. Uh, this, this is spiritual knowledge that he's speaking of. To have special revelation really from God for spiritual knowledge. It, it's in line with the the gift of prophecy and this ability to discern mysteries. But he's, he's speaking about having it all, having these powers and uh, understanding all mysteries and having all knowledge. And then he goes on, and if I have all faith as well. So not only that, having the, the gift of faith uh, that's so significant so as to remove mountains. So picture the person walking with all these powers, prophetic powers, knowledge of mysteries, knowledge of all aspects of God's creation and God's will and, and having the faith to actually move mountains. I picture some sort of, I don't know, superhero with a giant brain or something that walks around and, and like causes power outages and thunderstorms to happen because his gift and his power is so magnificent. That's, that's perhaps the picture that Paul's painting here. Imagine having all that great gifts at this level but then not having love. You could have all these gifts, you could have things at this level so significant, so amazing, but without love, he says, I am nothing. I am nothing. No more superhero. No more giant-brained guy. I am Nothing. That's a strong sentence. It's a shocking proposition. He is saying, I am nothing. He doesn't say, I have nothing, I accomplish nothing, but I 
am nothing. I am the same as being non-existent, meaningless, adding no value, finding no purpose, making no difference. I am nothing. It's as if I don't exist. Why would he say that? Well, love is that necessary. But why? Because we're made in the image of God. And 1 John 4 tells us God is love. And without love, we cease to be in the sense of what we're made to be. Without love, we do not fulfill our purpose. We are not reflecting the image of God. We are nothing in that sense. Love is essential to true being. Love is essential to being truly human as God intended. And that is the core problem, is it not, with, with us, our sin, that we do this thing that is so contrary to who God is? What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. What is the law? How do you sum up the law? Love God, love others, right? So sin is lovelessness. And God is so merciful that He doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us in our lovelessness. He comes to rescue us fully from this state of being nothing, essentially. That we might be forgiven for our lovelessness, not loving God as we ought to, not loving one another as we ought to. He lives the righteous life we were called to live as Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh. And then offers up that righteous life in our stead to pay for our lovelessness, pays for it completely, dies, rises again. And then in God's good providence, brings the message of salvation to you in the power of the Spirit that you might receive and receive that forgiveness in a real way and be joined to Christ now, the the loving one, and by that new life in Him, that union, empowered now to love. No longer be nothing, essentially, in terms of comparison to the image of God. Everything ultimately is meaningless without love. That's what Paul's saying here. I could have all these things. I could have everything. I could do everything. I could have these gifts. I could be so gifted. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. Now Paul goes on. There's one more aspect that's very sobering actually. Verse 3, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This is sobering. Because these are actions that are often understood, of course, as the highest expression of love, right? If I give away all that I have, all that I have, all my worldly possessions, maybe beyond that, giving away all that I have, For others, certainly that's love. And then I give up my body to be burned. If I deliver up my body to be burned, like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who in devotion to the Lord, love for God and His people, said they would rather die than to disobey and worship the image 
like the Christian martyrs, like the martyrs in history who, who loved God and loved His people so much that they did give up their very lives. Paul says, if I give away all that I have and do this thing that we would understand as the ultimate act of love, if I deliver up my body to be burned, this, this amazing ultimate act of love, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's a scary prospect. And what it means is we could actually go through the motions and think that we're doing well and not have love. It's a wake-up call for each of us to recognize the necessity of love and to recognize that we might miss it as well. We might think we're doing well because we're operating in our gifts and we're serving and yet we're not loving and therefore we gain nothing. That's how necessary love is. I think we see this in, in life in so many ways. I read about a uh, reality, actually, during the 19th century. Uh, more than half of all infants who were left in orphanages or, or hospital units for, for, for infants died during their first year of life. Um, the illness was known as infantile weakness or atrophy. Uh, there were studies done in 1915. Dr. Henry Dwight Chapin, a pediatrician in New York, uh, exposed the astonishing fact that in all institutions save one that he studied, every child under two years of age died. There was a study done in Baltimore, 200 infants, 90% died within the year. The 10% that survived, he stated, seemed to do so because they were taken out of the institution for some periods of time to be with foster parents or their relatives. It became apparent that infants, even in the poorest of households, without benefits, um, as long as they were close to their mothers or family members, had advantages over those who were left alone. After this discovery, in the second half of the 20s, several hospitals introduced regular care by mothers or foster mothers in their pavilions, and they saw a drastic change in infantile mortality. Bellevue Hospital, New York, in 1938, as they began this practice, the mortality rate went from 35% or so to 10%. It illustrates the reality of the necessity of love for life. We're made this way. And we could have everything else. We could have the best facilities and hospitals. We could have the best gifts. We could do the best service. But without love, we're not gaining anything. We're not really living. And so let that truth, just those first three verses, hit home. Let it hit home and, and call you to examine your life and say, am I pursuing a life of love? Are the things that I do in my life motivated by love? Take the measuring stick of love and measure really everything you do. Because it says without love, those things you do are ultimately, in the long run, empty, worthless, nothing. So instead of giving your life to nothing, a lot of busy nothing, consider the call to love in all we do. Love's necessity. 
next loves nature. Paul goes on in verses 4 through 7 to describe love. He describes what it is and what it isn't. 14 characteristics as I count them. Um, Love here is more than a feeling or an intention. It is a disposition and an action. It's an attitude and it's an affection. All these things together. So be careful in defining love as merely an action or merely a feeling. It encompasses all these aspects. There are three different subsections in these verses that I just want to talk about uh, using David Pryor, the Bible commentator's division. First, love in our our own darkness, love in others' darkness, and love in life's darkness. So you don't need to remember that, but we'll just go through that way. Verses 4 through 5, the reality of love in our own darkness. It starts out, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. First, love is patient. I love the old English word, long-suffering. That's closer to the original word here in Greek. Long-suffering. That means able to wait. Able to endure challenges. Love can wait for another to get to their point. To learn more about Christ. To to continue to to make that one step forward, yet two steps back. Three steps forward, yet, yet one step back. Love is not in a hurry to get where it needs to go. It listens, it's wait, it waits, it's there, it continues. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. This is the idea of thoughtful benevolence. It's acting in ways to help and bless others, to make their life better, to take note of their particular needs. Who are they? What's going on? What would help them in their particular situation? How can I help meet that particular need? Kindness considers others and thinks of ways to love them, even in the face of mistreatment by the other. Kindness returns blessing, even when cursed. That's what Paul's getting at here. Kindness is like the person who thinks about people. I love the thoughtful gift givers, and many of you exemplify this, people who are thoughtful in what they do. And by the way, thank you for your gifts to us and to our pastoral team. Love is kind. I think of the thoughtful gift giver who considers the person. And and I remember hearing stories of of people's moms. Uh, One story I heard about where a mom had passed away during the year, and they found her stash of gifts. And for all the family members, she had taken time during the year to, to select just the right gifts, and she had already wrapped it and put it away long before Christmas. And they, that was their Christmas, that first Christmas, losing their, their beloved mother. It's a picture of kindness, considering the other person, thinking about them, returning kindness even for mistreatment. Love is kind. Love does not envy not jealous, the same, it's the same word more or less here in the original language. It, it doesn't strive against someone else comparing itself, wanting to enjoy equal or better blessings than the other. It doesn't look at life that way. It doesn't look at people like, oh, wow, that's a really nice yellow Corvette that person has. I want a Corvette too. It doesn't think that way. Love is oriented towards the other. Love can vicariously enjoy what others have without a thought like, I want that too. Love can live off of that. Live off of others' blessings. It's not envious or jealous. 
doesn't need to love itself over someone else. Love does not boast, it says. It does not brag is another way to say that. It it doesn't go on about itself and and its achievements and interests and abilities. It it doesn't glory in itself. It glories in others. God first and then others. Certainly appropriately alongside the self, but, but God first and others. Love doesn't turn the conversation constantly back to itself. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know. I, have you ever noticed that in me? I, was, I could say that. I've noticed it in myself. I don't know about you. But sometimes I'm in conversations and someone says something and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I got a better one than that. And I'm waiting, like, when can I say my better one? Love doesn't do that. Love stops and listens and delights in the other's experience. Doesn't boast or brag. Doesn't have to one-up the story. Is glad and celebrates the other person's experience. And especially when we are glorifying God, enjoys that, enjoys God getting the glory. Love does that. Love is oriented towards the other, not self. Therefore, it doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. Similarly, it's not conceited. It, literally, it is not overinflated. Love doesn't have an unhealthy view of self, but is appropriately humble. Seeing who it is before God and others. Love is glad to take the lower seat to, to be the one who's not front and center. To see others advance without any begrudging of their success. Because love is oriented towards the other. Love is not rude. It knows how to behave in appropriate ways. Not because it read a book on etiquette. But because it's oriented towards the other. It's considerate and thoughtful. It possesses a degree of emotional intelligence to perceive others, and we all vary in this gift and so forth, but love will have a degree of this gift to perceive others and their needs and situations, to be oriented towards what is going on with others. It's appropriately empathetic and interested in others. It's not rude. These are the qualities of love that address what might be darkness in us otherwise. Now, if you've been listening as I've been going through this, thinking the whole time of certain others around you that lack these qualities, let me warn you, you're missing the point. And you're illustrating what love isn't. Love doesn't focus on others in that way. And to truly love, you must first see that the fault lies not with others, but with you. Love calls us to be these things regardless of others. That's what Paul's saying here. Love, love rises above what others might do to us to tempt us otherwise. Love works in us by the love of God itself. These qualities that are there. And so the orientation here should be, Lord, help me. I could go through all these five qualities and think about how others make me do things contrary to love. I'm impatient with foolish failure. Certainly. Why shouldn't I be? I lack kindness for Offensive people. I'm envious of those who are no more deserving than I. I boast about the really interesting things about me. I'm appropriately inflated, at least as I see it. I'm rude only with people who are too sensitive. That's the problem. Do you do this? This text calls us to repent. To 
to come out of that darkness, to take responsibility, to love, to address my lovelessness, not just in concept, but in relationship, because I could illustrate these tendencies that I have and when I've demonstrated, and the call in those particular circumstances to repent and say, I'm sorry. I was rude or impatient without blaming the other, saying they made me do it. Love does these things regardless. And so I must, and we all must stop making excuses for lack of love. Instead, to love in these ways, to admit our guilt and seek the remedy, the only remedy, the only remedy that's found is in the Lord. We'll get to that soon. It's in God. Love addresses our darkness. Love addresses others' darkness. It's how it might affect us. Continuing in verse 5 and, and following. It says, love does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. When love confronts others' desires and needs, it can flex and support their choices and interests just as well as its own. It's not self-centered, but appropriately selfless and is invested in the other. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's, it's flexible because it's not about itself. It presents its own perspective, but doesn't insist on its own perspective or its own way. It's glad to support others. It's not irritable. Love is not irritable. I, I like that translation. Uh, it also says in some of the translations, not easily provoked. Does anyone have a translation that says love is not easily provoked? It's the same sort of word. Um, it's not easily provoked. The word is provoked. It's interesting. So when you poke love, you don't get an angry response. When you poke and prod and provoke love, you don't get an angry response. You get kindness in return. I think of, I think of uh, appropriately so, the season of Ebenezer Scrooge here. Um, and this verse speaks of love as being not easily provoked, not irritable. It's not like Ebenezer... Uh, that, that story in, in the Christmas carol where he's in the office and the young boys come to the door to carol, Christmas carol, and he gets really irate and runs out and chases them away. Uh, he's angry. If you asked Ebenezer what the problem was, he would have said, it's those kids. And it's this bah humbug Christmas. And he would have demonstrated that he was irritable and easily provoked. And I Contrast that, of course, with Ebenezer later after he's changed, but, but with a, a, a loving person. Um, I remember I had a chemistry teacher like this. And he was, um, he just was not easily provoked. And we tried to provoke him, and he kindly and firmly pushed back, um, was patient. He didn't put up with stuff, but he didn't get provoked. And, and, it, and if you knew me back then, that was what I was looking for revoke my teachers, see what sort of response, and, and I didn't, never got that from Mr. Hurlin. I got, I got firmness, and he would tell me, Buckley, shut up, sit down, um, and then he would come to my wrestling matches. That's the picture here, someone who's not easily provoked, who loves and can look beyond provocation to love somebody, 
It overcomes provocation to seek the good of the others. It's not peevish or easily wounded, but gracious and redemptive. Love is not irritable or easily provoked. Love is not resentful, it says in the ESV. Literally, it says love doesn't count the wrong. Love isn't tallying how many times someone has crossed the line or failed to do what they ought. Love does not hold on to a list of wrongdoings, but holds on to grace and hope for the other. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is not a general idea that love somehow is oriented right theologically. This is all interpersonal things Paul is talking about. So what does it mean by wrongdoing? It means the wrongdoing of others. Not rejoicing in the wrongdoing of others. And this doesn't mean that love is moral. Of course love is moral. Love loves what is right and good. What this means is love doesn't take a morbid fascination in what others have done that's wrong. Love isn't cynical, rejoicing. Oh, let me tell you the, the latest thing about what so-and-so did, or, or whether it's someone you know personally or someone who's a celebrity. It doesn't take this perverse pleasure in wrongdoing. It doesn't want to talk about wrongdoing. It would rather move on to other things. What does it want to move on to? It wants to move on to the truth. What truth? General truth? No. The truth that God is working redemption, that God has taken on flesh, died for our sins and offers forgiveness and new life for others. And so when I think about others and their brokenness, and the brokenness of our world, I don't dwell there in cynicism. That's become a part of our culture, this delight in cynical humor. And sure, it has a, a, a place in, in some measure. But I think it's a reflection of the lack of love. We want to hear more of those stories. We want to follow the tabloids. We want to know what the latest celebrity did that was wrongdoing rather than rejoicing in the truth, thinking about the fact that God is merciful, praying for people, looking to be instruments of the truth of the gospel of redemption. That's the idea here. Not general wrongdoing and truth, but, but this interrelational, this orientation. I care more about seeing that person rescued and advanced in Christ-likeness, finding forgiveness. I want to be part of that solution, not part of the problem. That's the idea with love. Finally, in this section, love deals with life's darkness. Paul finishes in this statement here. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The, here, the, the ringing of all things, that's one word in the original language. It's essentially all or always. Love bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. That love when it sees things in this world, when it sees the darkness that's around there, all things that are going on, as it confronts all, as it lives its life, it bears all. It puts up with all things. It seeks to cover sin and offenses. The word bearing is close to the word for covering. It can say like Jesus and Stephen did at their death, while they're being terribly mistreated, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, don't hold this against them. That's what love is like. 
It bears all things. It, it isn't looking to, to bring a penalty and immediate correction, but, but bears with things, bears with mistreatments, not in a pathetic, passive way, but in the knowledge and love of the truth, of the fact that God is good and sovereign and that He's working redemption. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. That doesn't mean love is gullible. It does mean that love believes for the best version of things. It thinks positively about others and situations. It remembers God is good and in control. It looks for the best version of the person and the best outcome. It sincerely sees people that way, the best version that they might be or will be. It leans positive, not negative. That's what this is saying. It wants what is best. It loves people. That's why it does that. It leans that way. It's like the mother who, who, who can't help but see the best in their child, even when that child struggles. Similarly, it hopes all things. It's not only looking at the past or the present in this way, it's looking at the future. It's looking forward to what can happen, what would happen. It's not, love is not an Eeyore. We'll never make it. Love wants the best results. It orients itself in hope, feeling, thinking, and acting for the very best outcome and not giving up. And so Paul finishes with love endures all things. It hangs on. It doesn't give up on people and situations. It holds on relationally. It stays involved as much as possible. It keeps working for redemption as best as reasonably possible. It keeps praying. It keeps pleading. It keeps acting. It keeps waiting. I think of the story of George Mueller, pastor and orphanage director known for his faith and persistent prayer. He prayed for things and things happened. Yet for more than 40 years he had prayed for the conversion of a friend of his and his friend's son to no avail. He didn't give up. He loved them and so he prayed and he prayed to his dying day. That friend had not come to Christ when Mueller died. Yet God wasn't done. The friend came to Christ at his funeral. And his son came to Christ a week later. That's what love looks like. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we are invited into this love. This is the very love of God. Finally, love never ends. This last section, verses 8 through 13, makes the point that love never ends. It never fails. It never collapses, literally. It never stops. I resisted the temptation to introduce a Rickroll right here. Um, I don't know if you ever heard that, that but, but love is like that. Love never fails. It never ends. It never stops. And so Paul illustrates that throughout this section. He uses different things to illustrate that. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the, the partial will pass away. So the gifts are there because we need the help of the gifts. But they're not the fullness. They're, they're not the, the end point. They're just to help us now. And, and, and they don't even help us all the way. They just help us partially. 
And there will be a time when we're with the Lord and when He returns and brings His final kingdom. There's not going to be any more tongues or prophecy. No, any, no more any need for special revelation, special knowledge from God. We will see Him face to face. We will know all that we need to know. We will know fully, even as we are fully known. These things will be gone. They'll be done with. But love never ends. Then he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There's a progression here naturally. There's a time to move on. There's a time to grow up and stop wearing bibs and sitting in the high chair, right? You become a man and you move on. That's the same idea here. In God's plan, there's a moving on. But love never ends. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We, in this life, only see partially. We see like in a mirror dimly. Most of our mirrors are very clear. Back in those days, mirrors didn't have the same quality, so they would relate to a dim mirror, an unpolished mirror. They would use bronze, so it wasn't full of the correct spectrum, of the correct colors as you looked at it. So they would have related to this idea that you don't see it. it, it you know, your mirror kind of works, but there will be a day when, when metaphorically the mirror works perfectly. You will see face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, as a, even as I have been fully known. But love never ends. Love will remain. So verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Paul wants to to remind the Corinthians, guys, gifts have their place. But these three qualities, faith, hope, and love, are most important. They remain now. All three. But there will be a day when faith and hope are no longer necessary. Because you will see face to face. You'll be there. You don't have to exercise faith. You don't have to exercise hope because actually you're there. You've arrived. You're seeing all the fullness of the glory and all the fullness of the promises realized. Faith and hope are going to pass away too, but love never ends. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is eternal. Love endures forever. It lasts forever. Love will be perfected and eternal. And the rewards of love the rewards given by grace from God for lives of love, even with the most simple and, and anonymous acts, there will be an eternal reward for that love as we walk in love that will reverberate for year upon year, century upon century, epoch upon epoch, forever and ever and ever, only getting more glorious again and again. Love will never end. Love is eternal. This is love. This is love and its necessity. This is love and its nature. This is love never ending. And as I conclude, are you living in love? Let's do an exercise maybe to, to make it, to bring it home a little bit. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. And you'll see blanks there on the projection. And what I want you to do is insert your name there. And use this as the mirror of God's Word to examine your own life. So you don't have to say it out loud, loudly, but say maybe softly to yourself, I'm going to say my own name. Let's just read through this, putting our names here. 
and then think about how that affects us. So, first, verse 4, Paul is patient and kind. Paul does not envy or boast. Paul is not arrogant or rude. Paul does not insist on Paul's own way. Paul is not irritable or resentful. Paul does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul bears all things. Paul believes all things. Paul hopes all things. Paul endures all things. How'd that feel? Do you feel a little guilty? I do. <laughs> the reality is that in light of God's word, there's lots of room for growth for all of us. We should never have a problem in saying, I have not loved as I ought to have loved. Until we go to be with Jesus, there's going to be lots of room Change starts with admitting what's wrong. To admitting that the problem is first and foremost me, as far as I'm concerned, and my responsibility goes. I think of the famous uh, essay that G.K. Chesterton wrote in response to the London Times asking him to write an essay on what was wrong with the world. It was very short. It said, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. So let the Word of God do just that, to recognize that I am the problem as far as I'm concerned, and as far as my chief responsibilities go. But the next step is really important too. Look to Jesus. And so now let me read it with Jesus' name inserted here and recognize who our Savior is. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. This is Jesus. He fulfilled and fulfills love's call. And he has done this for you. So that you might be forgiven for falling short in the ways that maybe you're freshly aware as a result of reading the word. That's how much he loves you. But he's not done just there. That's so important. Forgiveness and being counted righteous in his sight. That's so important, but that's the beginning point of his work in you because through faith you are joined to him and now he calls you living in his love. We love because he first loved us to now love others. So he has homework for you to do, I trust. And let me suggest... Right now, before we prepare to transition to communion, you take time to think of just one, one person perhaps or one aspect of love that you need to address. And first start just by confessing your sin to Jesus for not loving. And then I'd say, secondly, go to him and thank him for forgiveness that he loves perfectly. And then ask him to show you how now to love like he does according to his word. Let me pray for you. Take a minute to do that, and Pastor Toby will come up and transition us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for love. We thank you for your love. And we ask you, Lord, to change us to love more and more like you as a result. Bless each one here to hear from you, to receive forgiveness and your call to walk in love, we pray in Christ's name.